Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Knowledge Podcast brought to you by the Wahoo Sports Science team here in Boulder, Colorado. I'm Neil Henderson, head of Wahoo Sports Science. And I'm Matt Casson, senior physiologist with the Sports Science team. Today, we're going to discuss everything you need to know about training volume. Whoa, whoa. We're not actually going to talk about everything you need to know about training volume because that would just A, take too long, and B, it's just like training. More isn't always better. So we're going to talk about really what you need to know about training volume to help you improve as an endurance athlete. So I'd say these days we have a lot of folks talking about, you know, the absolute utter importance of high volume training and many athletes because they've heard, you know, some very good sports scientists and coaches saying that volume is the answer uh, have now, you know, begun to believe that this volume is the key to getting faster. If that were true, you know, I would say probably folks who do stuff like race across America would be like winning the Olympics. And uh, guess what? Uh, They're not. So let's talk about how we do get faster. And I'm not saying that volume is not important because it is. Uh, It is a part of what we do in training for endurance sports that is important, but it is not the be all end all. So if we think about volume, there's a couple ways of looking at it. Some people have historically, classically thought of volume just as the the distance uh, accomplished in training. Yeah. So distance can be a, a great one to brag about when you talk about how many hundreds of kilometers you ride per week. Um, But really what it comes down to is just how you can quantify duration uh, versus distance. You know, if you ride uphill, you're going to be going slower. And so it might take you a really long time to only go 10 miles, whereas if you flip it and go back downhill, it might take you no time at all to go those 10 miles. So really duration helps us do more apples to apples comparison when we're talking about a ride you do Monday versus Sunday. And especially when you get stuff like wind and inclement weather, that can just really impact your speed. So distance just isn't isn't the best way to go about monitoring or tracking your volume. And I think generally when we talk about volume, we, we tend to mean on like a weekly training load basis. When we, when we talk about volume, we tend to mean how many hours per week are you training? And a, a key component here is also that generally when people are talking about more volume, they're specifically talking about more lower intensity zone two or like aerobic endurance training. That's what they talk about usually when they talk about more volume. Yeah, I think another thing to think about here is individuals have different ability. And so how much ground they actually cover for the same relative effort is clearly going to be different for, you know, somebody who can, you know, win the Olympics in an endurance event, you know, an easy run for, you know, Kipchoge might be, you know, five and a half minute miles, six minute miles is just kind of cruising along, go and do 20 miles at that pace. Um, isn't going to be terribly stressful, whereas for the rest of us, a running 20 miles alone is really difficult. And so time becomes a little bit better way of thinking of that. I remember there was a question asked, I think, of Bill Rogers at the Boston Marathon many years ago, and somebody in the crowd asked him, like, do you do three-hour long runs? He's like, well, geez, my race takes just over two hours. Why would I run that long? And so, you know, for him, the person who asked the question probably runs like a four-hour marathon. So, like, do I need to run like maybe three-quarters of the distance or time? Um, And his answer was, geez, that's like 50% longer than it takes me to race. So heck no, I don't run that far. And so duration is kind of an interesting uh, interplay then and thinking about really capacity and and how fast some folks go for that same relative intensity. So volume is an easier way to compare from person to person. I think that that brings up a a good point when we talk about, you know, these philosophies or, or ideas around high volume training. I think probably the most well-known one would be the polarized training, the 80-20. Historically, you know, this was um, 
a study done on some high-level Nordic skiers. They looked at their heart rate zones, and then they just looked at what percentage of their time training was at a lower heart rate, so a lower relative effort, and at a higher heart rate, so a higher relative effort. And so it came out to like this, the idea here is you should spend 80% of your time doing low intensity and 20% doing high intensity. Now, there's some flaws with that when you're talking about elite endurance athletes. The big one is that the average weekly volume that they were looking at here were people training for 25 hours a week, which means five hours of high intensity a week. That's a lot of high intensity. Yeah. So like, I mean, if I train, let's just say, you know, five hours in a week, well, I guess 20%, you know, uh, comparatively, you know, of uh, a five hour week is one hour versus that 25 hour, uh, that 20% is now five hours of training. So that's a, a pretty significant difference. And so just straight up comparing total volume there is is one of those issues. And your regular person who's trying to, to run a 10K or do an Olympic distance triathlon or maybe even finish, you know, a, a longer endurance bike race, you know, a gravel race or something that's going to be 80 or 100, 120 miles, probably not training 20 hours, 25 hours a week, are they, Mac? Probably not. Not not many people can do that. And if they do it, they generally, you know, don't keep that up for very long because they get pretty burnt out pretty quickly. Yep. But those who get paid to do it, elite professionals, well, they got the time, they got the energy. They also tend to adapt to training better than your average person. They have those physiological skills, setup, genetics, et cetera, that mean that they potentially can get better with that kind of volume of training where most of us who say work and have families and other responsibilities, well, that kind of training volume will just break us down. It's just going to be an overload. It's an excess. We can't adapt to it. So in that way, more definitely isn't better. If we look at the flip side now, we've talked about, okay, it's probably not realistic for a lot of people to do that sort of high volume. Then, okay, what's what's going to be the the downside of doing less high volume? Because the, the adaptations we're looking for are mitochondrial biogenesis, making more little powerhouses in your cells so you can use more fat, you can use more oxygen, you can go further for the same relative effort. So there has to be a, a break point there, right, where you need some minimum amount of endurance, that low-intensity training. Definitely. It is not a uh, one or the other. So uh, you don't have to throw away the concept of having some lower intensity, higher volume days in your training or even weeks in your training if you don't train consistently with a high volume. But you're going to have to then have some purpose and time when you inject that. So for most of us that have a job that requires lots of time Monday through Friday that the weekend is probably where we're going to be able to throw in a little bit more longer volume endurance type of training sessions that are more like in that you know if you're a cyclist a couple hours two three four hours maybe in some cases a runner you know a one to two hour long run is pretty solid long run in in most cases and uh, the weekend is usually the best time to be able to kind of insert that type of work in there. Again, contrary to popular belief, I don't think that your average person who is, say, that in that weekend warrior, you know, uh, style of training needs to be going, though, big and long every single weekend 
week in and week out. That's a mistake I saw a lot of uh, athletes that you know I knew when I was just kind of getting into sports doing. And every weekend they were trying to ride 100 miles getting ready for an Ironman. And they were trying to run a 20-mile long run almost every weekend. And again, they could do it for a couple months, but three, four months into things, man, they're just waning and, and slowing down and, and getting burned out. And it's like, okay, that was simply too much. And so having a, a bit of a counterbalance uh, with some easier weekends with your training, doing less, and sometimes even taking a weekend off. Oh my gosh, uh, what a novel concept. Um, I can tell you a few times I've had athletes that I've coached and can just tell that they've just, you know, they're, they're right on that edge. And you know what? They just need a weekend off. Literally like no bike, go away, do something different. And, and it can be super beneficial in the long term. Shifting off that a little bit, I think now's a good time to talk about uh, base season and your, your long winter miles and how that's a belief that a lot of people have that you need to, the only way to build a pyramid is to make a big old foundation. And the only way to build an aerobic pyramid is to have a big old aerobic foundation of lots of low intensity volume over the winter. What are your thoughts on that, Neil? I mean, I know in Egypt, that was definitely the way to build something big in ancient times. But in the current day, I think actually what we do is maybe drill down in and put some big steel I-beams and some concrete, and then we can build a, a foundation and go really high, maybe without having as much you know square surface uh, area covered in this super wide, flat, low level type of thing. And so there's different ways of getting it done. When I think a foundation in that base or that early phase pre, you know, pre-season is actually strength, structural foundation, integrity, muscle and connective tissue being prepared to be able to sustain then higher intensity and higher volume of training. And so for me, I'd think of that structure clearly a lot differently. And so the strength is a major component of that. And then in some cases, I think about, well, let's get everything connected that we have well and firing together, work on economy through things that are more in the neuromuscular realm of coordination, which involves actually some speed, high velocity work, as well as then that high force work with just strength and even the, the product of those two things kind of power and going at shorter durations with higher intensity first and then starting to go a little bit longer and then go at a lower intensity. Maybe it's almost the exact opposite of the old foundational base type of training that is still pretty popular out there. And, and again, can't say that that isn't a way that it can work, but it's not necessarily the way that works for those of us, especially who live here in the Northern Hemisphere. We live in Colorado and it snows in the winter. So going out and doing, you know, lots of long endurance cycling bike rides in, in cold weather, in the snow and in the wind isn't quite as realistic. And so we can do more of that strength and high intensity quality work sometimes indoors and maybe do some cross training outside, go out and do some cross country skiing, do some hiking, do some snowshoeing, do some fat bike rides, do some endurance rides, but save that higher volume of, of specific training to once the weather turns a little bit better and we have a good structural foundation to work from. What do you think, Mac? Am I nut? Am I crazy? Yeah, but that's not, oh, that's true. not in this Too different. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you can't tee it up like that for me, Neil. Um, <laughs> Home run. Yeah. And I think that's, um, you know, when we, you know, reverse periodization that you're kind of talking about here, I think that's something that is very underutilized by a lot of people. I agree completely. It's a lot funner to go do a five hour ride in the spring and summer 
than it is in the winter. And at the same time, there's there's a balancing act, right? We've been talking about how your weekly training is, is in hours, but then it has to be split up, some of it high intensity, some of it low intensity. I think historically there's been such a low acceptance rate of doing high intensity over the winter because what happens is people are doing that, they're inside, they're doing high intensity, and then the weather gets nice, they can go outside, they can start riding longer, but then they keep that same high intensity. So all of a sudden you're doing not just more miles, but you're also not backing off the intensity. And that's a, that is a surefire way to hit burnout by late summer, but it doesn't mean that, you know, the process of focusing on higher intensity structural foundation stuff over the winter and transitioning to volume, it doesn't mean it's bad. It just means you maybe didn't execute it as well as you could have. Exactly. And so, you know, how you emphasize that and include it and progress it is an important part of things. So I would say a, a good example, say in cycling, you know, we, we've seen a lot of athletes that have come from now track cycling and cyclocross, which are pretty high intensity, if you ask me, right? You know, I mean, cyclocross race starts with an all out sprint at the very beginning, and then you hang on and go, you know, as deep as you can consistently on off with all those accelerations for that, for the duration of the race. Um, it's not a steady state ever achieved there, and track racing is pretty much in that exclusively high intensity domain. Even the endurance races are extremely high intensity. So I think that paradigm, people are starting to understand that it actually old school, long, low intensity bases and may not be the actual ideal way. If you look back, you know, 30 years ago, athletes didn't monitor their training the way we do now. They weren't downloading power meters, heart rate monitors, all those things. It was just the distance and the race days, and that's how they looked at a season. And so a lot of the athletes in, in you know, the past may have been really pretty cooked at the end of the season. And if you are truly overtrained in terms of excessive stress, well, the only way you can come out of that is to, to reduce intensity for a period of time. And so you know, most elite athletes I coach take anywhere from two to four weeks, literally completely off of any endurance training. They may be active. They may go out and do something, go for a walk, go for a hike, go paddleboard, sometimes even get on some kind of bike, but not be training with purpose, with intensity. Just going out and moving and being a normal human is good. And even having a couple mini breaks within a season of five to 10 day period, once or twice, even during the season to reset, relax is also possibly part of that type of training where, again, we're able to, to do more specific work and build up to a higher peak, but then we also need to kind of pull off. We may turn up the heat a little hotter. We also then need to get it out, just like a, I guess if you're making a sword, I don't know what the, do you, do you know what the taint term for somebody who built, makes swords is? Blacksmith? Maybe. I thought there was another name, but, you know, if you're, if you're trying to make a sword, you know, you heat it up and you, you bang it and, you know, get it in the shape you want, but then you have to cool it off a little bit to harden it for it to, to, you know, be truly useful. So blacksmith does that kind of thing too with, with you know, whatever tools and things they're making. So you got to temper that. You might be able to heat it up and, and be able to get it to be stronger, longer, sharper, but you then got to temper it and cool it off to have it be truly useful. And specifically in that format, you they will quench the blade in oil. So you're saying for your off week, you should just lather up some baby oil and go, Go sit out maybe, in the sun or maybe, I mean, I wouldn't do it at a high altitude cause you're going to get super cooked. depends where you are relative to the equator as well. So, I mean, you can do that up in you know Iceland probably in the winter. Um, but you know, use with caution. So I think you could use the same analogy though, that, you know, if you just had a, a long period of time with that, you know, iron 
at a low temperature, it's still not going to change enough for you to be able to deform it and get it to do what you need it to do. So you do have to turn the heat up enough to be able to have it be malleable. And that, you know, from a physiological perspective, you got to do enough intensity to create a stimulus for change and then recover from it. So you get those adaptations and increased capacities and abilities. Yeah, I think that highlights a really strong misconception that people have that makes them hesitant to take that time off. Um, it's the, that fear that five days of not doing anything, all of a sudden my three months of training, all that's going to evaporate. So I need to be on it every single day. I can't take a break. That's just not how it works. That's not how your body works. You, you need those periods, like you said. You need those periods where you really back off, allow your body to adapt to all the stress, and then put it through more stress and continue to build. Absolutely correct. Uh, I sometimes use a, a phrase, rest is not a four-letter word. And even though I can count to four, which R-E-S-T, I guess, is four letters, it's not a bad word to use. And it's absolutely a necessary part of training. You got to pull back uh, to be able to move forward. And the one one last um, kind of misconception I think it's it's worth addressing here that I think has helped proliferate the, like the base season or, you know, really, I'd say highly structured periodization where you have weeks where you're doing just one type of intensity. So you, and, and the misconception people have there is that if you're not doing just endurance training, you won't get the physiological benefits of endurance training. And so there's always this fear of, okay, if I'm not, if I'm not doing just base training, if I do any sort of intensity, then all these hours of endurance training, all of a sudden all the benefit I would reap from that are just going to disappear. And that also comes from the fact of people like, oh, I'm, I just have two, three weeks of just threshold work because I want to improve my threshold. So I can only do threshold work. If I do VO2 work, it's going to screw up my threshold gains. And if I don't do high enough intensity, I'm not going to get the same gains. And your body just doesn't work that way. It responds to the stress you put it under. And that means you can still get an endurance stimulus from doing a three-hour ride on the weekend if you did a strength session the day before. I would say one of the ways to, to think about your training is you are not just preparing to do one little thing well, you're preparing to do a lot of things well and, and being able to turn on and off all those different things at different points is going to be variable and having that skill set and the ability to do all of those things depending on the demand is going to make you a better competitor. So I think that's a bit of a wrap here for today talking about volume. I know we drifted around a few different places, but just like any any good ride, sometimes taking a little turn here and there is going to take you to a place that's uh, much more enjoyable. What do you think, Mac? Well, with my GPS head unit, I don't I don't take deviations oh, no from my route turns for Mac anymore. Man, he's on it. All right. Well, for those of you uh, listening at home, thanks again for joining us today, and we'll see you next time on the Knowledge Podcast. Yeah.